Welcome to Soul Talk, soulful conversations exploring who you are, why you're here, and how to live your most authentic life. My name is Coop Blackson, nationally best-selling author of You Are The One, transformational teacher, and your host. I invite you to subscribe to the Soul Talk podcast for weekly inspiration from me, where I will share with you some powerful ideas, thoughts, and practical life wisdom to help you live life more fully, freeing yourself from your past, reclaiming your power, and living your true life's purpose. You can also go to www.coopblackson.com, enter your name and email to download my free two-part video training series and learn the ultimate secrets to happiness and fulfillment. Let's get started with Soul Talk. Welcome back, folks. Welcome to another uh, episode of the Soul Talk podcast. Today's episode is going to be, I think, another special one. I'm actually very curious and excited to interview my guest today. I had the opportunity to hear him speak at a very special conference an association of transformational leaders uh, last year. And I think he really uh, shook the audience, those uh, who were in attendance and brought some profound perspective and insights uh, that were really, really profound, deep and uh, challenging in terms of uh, the typical way we we view life and see things. And so I think uh, today's will be very interesting. So get your notepads ready. He's a co-founder at the Neurohacker Collective Director of Research and Development, where he's focused on developing processes, technologies for advancing medicine, human optimization. Uh, he has a blog on redesigning civilization at Civilization Emerging. I mean, when I heard him speak, I considered him a philosopher. So welcome to the conversation today, uh, my friend, Daniel Schmachtenberger. Daniel, welcome. Thank you, my friend. I'm happy to be here. I'm looking forward to this conversation. Great to have you on. And so, uh, look, I'm curious. I have a bunch of questions for you, but I am curious, especially for those that may, you know, not know of your work um, or your blog or, you know, what you've been sharing in terms of interviews. You know, I saw you speak and and it was very, very deep. You shared a lot of, uh, I think, at least for me, profound insights. What, What exactly... This might sound simple or strange, but what, Daniel, what exactly do you do? I mean, I, I, like, are you a, are you a, are you a philosopher? I mean, for me, you are philosophizing. You know, are you, what would you call yourself? You know, what, what do you do? What do you call yourself? What, you know what I'm saying. Well, what's the deal? Yeah. Um, I don't know that I really be all that interested in calling myself anything um what do i what do i do i can talk about what i'm interested <laughs> in and things that i'm that i put energy towards and study and work sure. towards. you mentioned uh a little bit with regard to uh, medicine and biotechnology i it's a area that i'm uh, fascinated by and love. And so there's mm. some attention in that space. That was actually kind mm. of unintentional. That was uh, because while I was working on other things, I had some uh, illness arise that was uh, uncurable from traditional methods. And so I had to put attention to seeing if I could figure out some way to work with it. And it happened to be that some of the scientific background and approach that I have and working on things like ecology and economies and like complex systems were applicable to having new insights in medicine. So 
So there's still some work there. My primary focus is um, how do we design a civilization that doesn't cause all of the problems that the types of civilization that we currently have and have had historically, environmental and social justice and war and et cetera. Like, what are the underlying bases of all those problems? And can we actually change that at the level of the design of a civilization system itself? So that looks like, you know, whether we're looking at species extinction or biodiversity loss or trees getting cut down, we, we can see that underneath all those issues, you have the fact that most trees are worth more cut down than they are alive. Most animals are worth more killed than they are alive. There's a perverse incentive mm -hmm. underneath that. War is more profitable than peace. Sick people are more profitable than healthy people. And so you start to say, okay, well, as long as a problem is being incentivized, it's not going to stop. <laughs> and so that's like an example of if we, if we really want to change the dynamics of the world, we have to change how people coordinate and how they make sense of the world and what they're incentivized to do in a deeper way. And kind of how I got into thinking about this was I was, as a kid, I was working in activism in a bunch of different fields, environmental stuff and animal rights and social justice. And we made profoundly little progress. And hmm. I really wanted to understand why we're humans. Like those of us in activism, it seems so clear that we don't want to kill the elephants for their ivory or clear cut the Amazon. And yet so many people and large corporations were continuing to do those things. So it's like, what is it that is driving all of those? How are they interconnected? And are there some foundational structures that need addressed? And I was, you know, studying kind of systems theory and complexity and how how things fit together at the same time. And so that just led to deeper and deeper inquiry into uh, fundamental civilization design stuff. So you say, kind of, what do I do now? It, it partly looks like looking at near-term risks for the world and seeing how we can mitigate those. And then also looking at how can we actually design new systems of how humanity can make sense of the world and make choices, which is like new methods of governance and resource allocation that are structurally different than the types of top-down governments and the types of market systems we've had so far that predispose different patterns of human behavior that don't predispose war and environmental destruction and things like that. Mm. Mm. Got it. So you talked about you know, some of the primary problems that we're facing uh, or the primary causes of the problems we're facing as a humanity today. Uh, can you share a bit more about what you see are some of the primary causes in terms of like why why we why we are where we are as as humanity as and, and why we're facing what we're facing what are some of the primary problems that you could maybe kind of outline a little bit yeah well what are some of the problems kind of on the surface level and what some of the causes are um, yep. different, connect those. Mm -hmm. um, I was giving, I was saying when I was young working in activism, there was not that much uh, success. Specifically, there was one experience where uh, I was a kid and we were 
writing letters and raising money and whatever to help a project that was working on um, prevention of poaching for a particular elephant preserve in Kenya. And because poachers were getting into the protected preserve and still poaching elephants. And so there was this huge work that a number of environmental groups, uh, animal rights groups worked together to do that involved getting bigger fences around the preserve so the poachers couldn't get in and legislation passed for harsher sentencing for poaching elephants. And after like a tremendous amount of work and people having their life threatened by the poaching groups and whatever, it finally succeeded. The fence went up, the legislation went through, mm -hmm. and it actually did stop the poachers from poaching those elephants. But it didn't address the poverty of the poachers that had no other way of feeding their kids in some of the poorest areas of the world. And it didn't yeah. address the macroeconomy that creates poverty at scale. And it didn't address black markets on animal parts. And it didn't address all these other interconnected issues that were driving it. And so the same groups of poachers moved to start hunting the white rhino and the mountain gorilla, both of which were more endangered. And so mm. we didn't solve the problem. We moved a problem and we moved it to more sensitive areas where the net effect on the world was actually net worse. Mm. And because I was engaged with enough different nonprofits and being able to see not just the, what looked like the local success, but also the larger failure, that was, uh, that was particularly devastating. And I started looking at all the places where as we were working on solving a problem, we were actually just moving problems and oftentimes moving them to mm. being worse problems. And it was most of our approach because we were just working on the surface of things without addressing both what's interconnected and what the underlying drivers are. And so mm. I started seeing quite deeply around what would it take to actually solve these problems. And of course that requires both the things we said, the context map of how issues are interconnected and so that we actually understand the problem statement well enough. The problem there was not people poaching elephants. The problem was a macro economy that creates poverty, people in poverty, mindsets towards animals that are extractive and utilitarian, black market dynamics, et cetera, as well as the poaching of the rhinos. Like there's all these interconnected things. And yeah. if you try to isolate them and do a reductionist approach, what you'll end up doing is usually benefiting something at the expense of the other ones. Yeah. Got it. So how do you, how do you, how do you, how do you change it? A situation like that, what, what, how, how do you really go about shifting it, but not just at the expense of something else? What would be an, 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 an approach? Yeah, so to go one step deeper in understanding mm -hmm. the nature of the problem, because that's one example. There's lots mm -hmm. of examples. I would say... The problem that I'm focused on solving more than anything is that humanity's process of solving problems to date mostly makes worse problems. And that we actually need a new problem-solving process. And so we, we solve problems through uh, legislation and law or through creating a new piece of technology or through sometimes social movements. And all of them usually have in common too narrow an identification of what the problem is, not clear enough awareness of the layers of causation, 
And so you end up getting this displacing effect. But in general, if I'm going to solve a problem, my solution has to be bigger in terms of scale or speed or whatever than the problem was to overtake it. And if it's bigger and it externalizes harm somewhere else that I wasn't paying attention to, that adjacent problem down the road will end up being bigger. So like in technology, I'll give you an example. Let's say, now this will sound maybe a mm. little bit grim. I don't think it is, but I do think it's important to understand as part of the context. Because So I would say that if we look at humans' ability to make tools, so technology development mm. is obviously key to how we go about solving problems. And a lot of people today would say the answer to most of the problems in the world is we're going to make better tech, better solar cells to displace the fossil fuels and better stem cell meats to displace the factory farms and whatever, right? <clears throat> and I don't think those things are worthless. They're a part of the answer, but usually mm -hmm. the way they're approached, not adequate. If we think about any tech that humans have ever created, let's go all the way back to like stone tools and, and the wheel. And we say, has that increased human capacity? Totally. Has it made life better in some super meaningful ways? Totally. Has it also allowed us to do some really messed up stuff? Yeah, totally. Mm -hmm. And so when you say how many things have we damaged in the world having the wheel that had we not had the wheel, we couldn't have damaged. And it's like mm -hmm. amazing, right? If you, if you think about a world where we didn't have that level of transportation technology, we couldn't actually risk the, the whole biosphere. We couldn't wage war at scale. And then you go forward and you say, okay, well, the internal combustion engine and the development of the car was pretty awesome for increasing mobility and transportation. We were really stoked on that. And it was solving problems like mobility problems. Actually, one of the problems it was really solving was the problem of the fact that horse and carriages in cities like London were just leaving so much horseshit that the cities were having a hard time functioning and being buried in horseshit. And so <clears throat> we wanted an internal combustion engine to solve the horseshit problem. And so then we get an internal combustion engine and you look at, you know, fast forward 100 years and climate change and particulate pollution in the atmosphere and oil spills and offshore oil drilling mm -hmm. with spills and wars over oil and destabilization politically of the whole Middle East. Like the biggest fucking issues mm -hmm. you can imagine are the results of that thing having succeeded, mm -hmm. but it not being a comprehensive look at what needs to happen. And so in general, what we do is take a very complex picture that's very interconnected. Ecosystems are very connected. Human social systems are very connected. Human bodies are connected. Same with like if we see that someone's cholesterol is high, so we give them a statin to lower it, but we don't ask why mm -hmm. it was high and what are all the connected things. We'll lower the cholesterol but cause toxicity to other systems in the process without actually making a healthier system. Mm -hmm. And so the the process has to move from a narrow definition of the problem where the solution that we create to solve that interacts with a lot of other things that we aren't factoring and then externalizes harm to those things to a process of understanding how the thing that we're looking at is contextualized in a much more full landscape and then being able to take all of the things that it's connected with and all the underlying layers of causative effect and factor those into the design of an adequate solution, which basically means we need much deeper sense-making into what's actually going on to inform 
the design solutions so that they're actually good design solutions and don't just uh, kick the can down the road and externalize. And, and specifically, when we have the level of technological power we have today, we can't keep solving problems in ways that make bigger problems because the problems are already catastrophic. And so we actually have to shift this. So I really do see us at the brink of a necessary epoch shift into a phase that is different than anything in human history so far. Mm. Mm. Yeah. We're in a very uh, pivotal time. And so as a side note, I, I have a question about questions. I'm curious when you, let's say, look at a problem, because, you know, problems are yeah, part of life, you could say. Everyone alive as human beings in their personal lives, relationship, financial, health, facing problems, the world facing problems. Uh, as a humanity, we're facing problems. I'm curious, when you look at a problem, are there any uh, key questions that you tend to ask yourself when looking at a problem that helps you see a problem differently uh, so that you can get a different viewpoint or a higher perspective, see the whole more clearly. And so are there any questions you, you typically ask yourself or is it just new in every moment? Can you share a bit about that? Yeah, this is, this is actually a question I really like because the emphasis here is that in order to address problems better, we need to ask better questions. And so that we get fuller, because the questions are a lead into having fuller sense making to inform the right kind of choices and the right kind of design. And so more than what is one specific kind of question is the kind of doubling down on question asking in general. Um, and having a process where before we say, okay, here's the problem, we roll up our sleeves and we have this kind of action-oriented bias that says, all right, right away, what's the first solution we can come up with? I want to say, do we actually understand the problem well? Do we understand the history of how it evolved to be this way? Do we understand all of the connected factors? Do we understand all of the partial causal factors that might be multifactorial? Do we, do we actually understand it well enough to know what the problem statement is, to know what a good solution would be, where the solution is not just good from the point of view of the obvious thing, but the things that would be future externalities? Can we actually pay more attention to that up front? So I want a process where the design team, all the people involved, and let's say it was a, a, a civics group who was focused on whatever it was, like a, a transportation issue in their area. We start by collectively going through processes of uh, asking all the questions that we would need to address in order to have the information necessary to know how to do the design before we start getting into the design. And so oftentimes, the questions, you know, let's say I'm looking at a situation where we're contemplating building a bridge somewhere and the, there's some obvious pros in terms of lowering trends at time, which would help economies and like that. But there's some cons that the particular proposal of where the bridge might go would damage local ecosystems. And I want to ask a lot of questions of like, what are the reasons that we really want a bridge? Let's understand those because it might be that we can just make the local economies on both sides better and denecessitate the bridge. What are the, I want to ask the questions around, what are the concerns associated with the bridge as an approach? What are the assumptions underneath this question that the transportation needs to happen at all, that the transportation needs a bridge, maybe a ferry or a barge could do, that it 
has to, that there has to be a theory of trade-offs between the economy and the environment. Maybe there's another place I could put the bridge that doesn't have a sensitive ecosystem on the other side. And so we want to get into a process of saying what assumptions are built into the way I'm approaching this. And I also want to ask, what is fundamentally meaningful that is connected to this separate than strategy? Oftentimes we jump straight to strategy. And it's entirely possible that we might have two strategies that are mutually exclusive, like build the bridge and don't build the bridge. And if I assume that build the bridge equals uh, make better economy and make better jobs and my kids can't currently get jobs, then I am devout for the proposition of make the bridge because it equals automatically my kids can actually survive better. And if I'm someone else is focused on don't make the bridge equals that this forest stays intact and we don't kill the endangered species in the area, then what happens with that kind of polarized position in terms of strategies is we made a shitty proposition, right? The proposition was make the bridge as the solution where we didn't understand the whole context map enough where to solve that problem, which was a very partial subset of all the interconnected things, where to solve that problem, I have to cause another problem. So then whoever feels most connected to the problem being solved wants the proposition. Whoever feels most connected to what would be harmed doesn't want the proposition. And just by the process of creating a proposition that way and having people vote on it, you polarize the population. And now people mm. spend most of their time fighting each other rather than figuring mm. out good solutions to them. And so before I even create a proposition that might be based on like dumb polarization, I want to say what matters to everyone separate from the strategy. So, okay, you actually don't care if there's a bridge or not. You care that there's good economic opportunities for your kids. And the other person, mm. you don't actually care if there's not a bridge. You care that the uh, ecosystems are protected. If we, there isn't actually anything that makes those two things mutually exclusive necessarily, and being able to hold them both as design constraints might lead to a different solution that we, than we wouldn't have thought of at all. And so this is where we want to say, okay, so what is actually meaningful separate from the strategy that we think is going to fulfill it so that we can hold all the meaningful things to possibly enter into a design process um, it doesn't have to be based on unnecessary theory of trade-offs, which will force polarization of populations and harm of some things for the benefit of others. So these types of questions, what assumptions are underneath mm. how I'm thinking about that? What, how do I separate what is meaningful and what are all the things that are meaningful from the possible strategies? And in order to address the questions I'm thinking about, what other questions would I have to address? that are underneath these or connected to these so that I get this deeper context map of related topics and then answering those questions mm -hmm. informs what I would need to know to even approach the design of a solution properly. There's this mm -hmm. saying in that, an engineering saying by Charles Kettering that uh, problem fully understood is half solved. But the mm -hmm. corollary is that a problem not fully understood is unsolvable. And so I want to start with, do we actually understand not just what right. looks like the problem, but what is actually the problem set? Do we really understand it well enough that we even know what a good solution would be? Because if we go to solution creation before we even know what we're looking for as a good solution, 
and a good solution comprehensively enough that it's not a bad solution in the future or a bad solution to somebody else. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I like that. Do we even understand uh, the nature of the problem? I think many many times we're so busy to try and fix something without even understanding the the underlying nature of a problem itself. And so I'm curious. I mean, this is really great stuff. Uh, I'm 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 curious now. As you're sharing, um, you know, that if our ability to, let's say, understand the problem um, is partly perhaps, you know, how you see a problem uh, is going to be, let's say, different than I see a problem, different than, you know, Joe or Susie or Bill, you know, anyone else sees the problem. And so would it be fair to say our ability to understand the problem may be determined by our level of consciousness? And if so, at, you know, different level of, if, if we're expanded in different level of consciousness, we're able to perceive a problem differently at that level of consciousness. And how does one, how does someone listening in a person who's just having listening to this conversation with, with us, how does one get to the level of uh, wisdom, um, expanded perception, uh, yeah, enlightenment, you know, as in just more expansion in their ability to perceive a problem, to understand the nature of a problem so that they can even uh, create a more, uh, I don't know, effective proposition to begin with. Yeah. Are there any things that, are there any things that you've also done in your own yep. practice life that have given you more ability to see a problem and even understand the problem differently? Because I think we're so stuck in our own conditioning that we don't even understand the nature of the problem. So anyway, that's my question. Yeah. So let's, let's take the way, the fact that people might understand a problem differently and based on kind of their understanding and their conditioning. And let's separate it into some people might understand a problem more completely, like their understanding includes someone else's mm-hmm. understanding, includes more stuff, so includes and transcends it, versus people have different backgrounds. Neither one includes or transcends the other. They just have different things they're focused on. Both are true. Mm. So let's say we go back to that. Someone might look at the situation there, and if they were to describe the problem they see, they would they would see a problem that there wasn't enough protection of the preserve to actually protect the elephant. And based on what they were tuned into of watching the elephant herd, you know, like maybe one of the, the keepers on the ground would see that problem. Maybe someone else would look, and based on being tuned into something else, they would say, I see a poverty problem. Because those poachers actually don't want oats. They would much rather do something else. They grew up in a local tribe that was animistic and talked about the spirit of the elephant. They just they either kill that elephant or they watch their child starve. And so because they're looking somewhere else, they're tuned into a different problem. Someone else says, actually, it's not the issue of the poverty in that little area. It's the issue of the structure of macroeconomics writ large that makes a power law distribution and wealth that makes poverty areas all around the world. How do we actually change macroeconomics? Someone else says, well, it actually has to do with a worldview that is based on commoditizing other species in life and not seeing them as having intrinsic value. 
And so you can see that based on what people are paying attention to, they would see they would all see parts of it, right? And that doesn't necessarily mean that any of them are at a higher level of consciousness. They're just tuned in to different things that are all interconnected. And so the first thing is you'll notice that a technologist looking at it or a mother looking at it or an ecologist looking at it are going to look through the lens of what they are kind of trained to look for and they'll see different things. So this is where in my own life, if I'm going to make a choice by myself, I have to make sense of the problem or the what is desired by myself. But if there's a bigger thing where we're going to collectively make a choice together, then we have to also collectively sense make. And the collective sense making is what is the stuff that you're seeing and what is the stuff that I'm seeing? What it, and can we actually synthesize all this to a much bigger picture at the level of the collective than any of us had as individuals? And so this is not just how do I evolve my consciousness to hold more. This is how do I relate with other people to be able to have the, the group have a higher order intelligence than any of the people on their own do. Now, I'll bridge those and say something that people can do as individuals to hold more of the whole is yeah. actively seek to look at the situation through the lens of other people. Actively and, seek to look at the situation through the lens of another. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, you actually asked, how does someone uh, hold greater perception? So if we think about perception mm -hmm. or perspective perspective on anything that inherently means I'm not seeing the whole thing. I'm seeing it through from a particular direction, through a particular lens, from a particular vantage. So every act of perception of reality is inherently reducing the total information of reality, right? If I'm looking at a building from the west side, I'm not seeing the inside and the south side and the aerial view. And so my perception is true, but it's partial. And if I believe it to be complete, then I'm just wrong. And so I have to get that if I'm looking at a building, there is no perspective that gives me the whole thing. I have to actually take lots of perspectives and then be able to integrate them in a way that I can't compress into a single perspective. And so we could easily fight you standing on the east side of the building, me standing on the west side yep. and saying it looks like this, no, it looks like this. Or we could say, okay, these, mm. there is some truth in each of these. There's limitation in them. The actual reality can't be reduced to a picture because a 3D reality doesn't fit into 2D without limitation or distortion. Mm. And so in a similar way, the first thing that I would want to do if I was trying to solve a, any kind of problem that affected a number of people would be to ask other people how they see the problem and rather than ask, do I agree or disagree? I would try and see it through their eyes and see, both see what they see and see why they see it that way and see what things they see that I wasn't seeing or I wasn't waiting enough. And mm. so that I can factor more perceptions. Mm. You asked if there was a practice that I do. There was when I was a teenager, yep. this practice really hit me and I, um, I was actually, I was with a friend who happened to be a hairdresser. And when this thing went off and we were sitting watching people walk by and she commented like four or five times on 
the way people's haircut framed up their face and that that they had a really beautiful jawline, but their haircut was wrong to accentuate it or their haircut was right or the color brought out their eyes or, and I realized that I had never noticed what anyone's hair looked like. Like I'd never Mm -hmm. actually paid attention and I'd never paid attention to the way that it accentuated the structures of their face. And she's paying so much attention to it. And I'm like, she actually lives in a universe I've never even been to. Um, in the totality of information available, she's tuned into stuff I'm not tuned into. And so I'm missing so much stuff. And so I asked her to start explaining to me what she saw in everyone's face. And I tried to take on seeing the world the way that she did. And in order to do that, I had to stop noticing all the things that I would notice because there wasn't enough conscious bandwidth. And I'm like, wow, there's a whole nother universe here. And and I was missing information. And so then I went and said, what are all the perspectives that I'm missing? And I went and talked to a friend who is a mechanical engineer and I asked him, will you just share your thoughts out loud with me as we walk around the world? And we walked around and he talked Hmm. about the nature of the compressional stress and shearing stress on, on the lamp poles as we were walking and how he would design them differently and the way that the screws Hmm. were threaded and how he would do different threading of the screws and the way that the street was banged for the flow of water. And again, like what he was tuned into is a universe I had mostly never paid attention to. And then I walked with the astronomer friend and everything they looked at, they were thinking about how these atoms were formed in supernovas and Mm -hmm. how those atoms got here and the whole process. And so I took on the practice of being other people and trying to see the world through their eyes, experience it through their experience as completely as I could Yes, And then be able to step out, then be able to take many different people's perspective on the same situation Mm. one at a time and then see what greater insight could I get by being able to synthesize those in myself. Mm. I love it. I love it. It kind of opens up, I think, many dimensions of perspective. And what I'm also hearing is is it it has the possibility to open up uh, compassion. Uh, as you are able to really step into those perspectives. Um, I think it's very about what you're saying, actually uh, seeing the situation from the lens of another. Um, what, what about, I'm curious, though, what about, let's say, uh, when someone's perspective, because I, you know, I think it is difficult for people to sometimes do that, especially when the other perspective can seem or feel so polarizing, Let's say when someone's perspective is, uh, you know, uh, white people are bad, black people are are, are, are less than, or, you know, uh, uh, let's say uh, anti-abortion, pro-choice, when some of the perspectives aren't just, oh, wow, someone's hair, but at least seeming fundamental to, you know, one's existence or value as a, as a being, as a human being? What, 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 what about when to take on someone's perspective, you know, there's so much charge. I mean, look at our politics in America today. So, so when, when there's such a charge and maybe when someone's perspective seems so fundamentally different, wrong, you know, uh, against one's, I don't know, belief system, that it could be threatening to one's life even. How 
how, how to do it in that situation. I think that's what that's what I'm really trying to, to understand. Yeah. Would love your perspective on that, you know, because, yeah, I could see it, but, wow, I don't want to believe that, you know, gay people are evil or bad. Or I, 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 how would I take, how would I enter that perspective? Okay, so this is obviously um, super deep and essential to uh, yeah. everything in the world and also very sensitive. So we'll unpack this in a couple yes. steps. Please. So when you asked how can, how can we, where there is a lot of charge, take the perspective of the other, I think to some degree mm-hmm. the answer is we can't. Mm-hmm. Which means to the degree that I am so fused with the way that I see things that I can't actually take the way that I see things off because I'm getting triggered into emotional reactions, then I actually won't be able to. And mm-hmm. so this, there's actually a very interesting kind of spiritual insight in this process of, let's say I take on the perspective of the hairdresser or the mechanical engineer or the astronomer, or the clans member or the jihadist or the whatever, right? So what part of me is able to take on seeing the world through their perspective? Because it's not my perspective, right? My perspective is kind of synonymous with my ego, my personality, my, my way of seeing the world that I've identified with a name and a, a mm-hmm. sense of self. Mm-hmm. And if I'm really going to see the world through someone else's perspective, I actually have to let like if I'm if I'm going to really see the world through your perspective, I can't be kind of half-assing it through your perspective and assessing whether I agree <laughs> with it or not at the same time. So then mm-hmm. I say, well, what element of me can see the world through your perspective? And I'm like, well, the consciousness that is witnessing the stream of thoughts that I call Daniel can also witness the stream mm-hmm. of thoughts and perceptions as I understand them that we call coot. But <clears throat> Daniel can't do that because it's already like his consciousness is already full. His bedstream is already full. So to really seek to take the perspective of someone else requires letting my perspective go and saying what I'm, what is taking that perspective is actually consciousness, not ego. So there is a forced move from identity to something deeper than identity in the process of looking through the lens of someone else. So it's actually, like from a spiritual perspective, it's one of the most potent spiritual exercises I know because to really take on being someone else, you are really experiencing consciousness not filtered through your own identity. Mm -hmm. And so that's one thing. So the degree to which my identity is so traumatized that my, and that I have so little training in having my consciousness be able to witness it and real and not be fully fused with it, I won't be able to take other people's perspectives. So the answer is I, I want to understand that I could have grown up differently and have different beliefs and have different likes and have different habits and there would still be a consciousness witnessing it. So this there is there is something deeper to what I am than mm. those perspectives that are polarized with someone else's perspective. In fact, had I grown up where they grew up in exactly their life experience, I'd probably believe about the same yeah. thing they do. Mm. And now I can get that cognitively. I might also have to do some trauma healing to be able to do yes. it. But, yes. but for instance, let's say that, let's say I'm, I want to think about a, a clan member or any kind of mm-hmm. view that as a, our group is the 
supreme one or the only one with rights to such and such, right? But I'm not going to say that that view is a viable view of the world. But I will say, say I want to understand how little babies grew up to be adults that believe that and mm. why that makes sense to them and why it, it feels true because I can't work with them if I don't understand that. And if I can't work with them, then I'm like, I can feel righteous about shit and still be ineffective. I can be pretty righteously sure that they're wrong and terrible and I'm right and good, but I can't kick those groups off the planet. So I can try and do warfare with them, whether it's narrative warfare and explaining why they're bad or economic warfare and terrifying them into changing or kinetic warfare and we're actually going to blow them up. But they think the same thing about us, right? They think that, that they are right and good and we're dumb and bad. Um, and they're upping their ability to try and kick us off the planet. And at the current level of technological capacity, that yep. will solve this through warfare isn't possible anymore. The warfares are too mm. large for the planet to sustain. And so mm. we actually have to figure out a different answer. So part of it is also helpful realizing we're fucking stuck with each other on this little bitty planet floating mm. through space with no other really good options. <laughs> and then saying, right. So how are we actually going to work it out together? Well, yeah, I don't how are we? Things through perspective, I, I have no chance at even beginning the conversation. Mm. St. Saint, Saint Francis, obviously, St. Francis of Assisi, talked about seek more to understand than to be understood. And yeah. he had another poem where he said... If you can't imagine yourself a murderer, a rapist, a torturer under the right settings, then you don't know the meaning of compassion because you believe yourself mm -hmm. to be fundamentally and intrinsically superior to others and you're not. Mm -hmm. And so if I look at child soldiers in Darfur or Liberia, and I see that by the time they're 10 or 11 years old, they've all hacked people apart with machetes, should yeah. it their fault? Nope. If they yeah. didn't, they wouldn't take it to 10 or 11. And we look at the systemic desensitization and conditioning and whatever that happened, and there's no part of me that gets to feel superior to them. And so mm -hmm. I have to say, if I was born into that situation, I could also be hacking people apart with machetes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so then I yes. actually want to imagine being a clan member and saying, okay, mm. why... I've got a group of people who feel actually really disenfranchised. They like they're largely dealing with meaningful poverty and they have grown up, you know, so I, I imagine a kid, right? He grows up and he's heard like all he's heard is this kind of racist narrative his whole life. So he never had a chance to believe anything else. If he didn't believe that he would be rejected and disowned by his family and everyone he's ever known. And so that, it, like believing that is not only the only thing he's ever been exposed to, but necessary for inclusion. He's had the idea kind of, he's been given distorted information that everyone else was given, right? Which is that the, the black people could fundamentally commit more crime and more violent crime and mm -hmm. et cetera. Mm -hmm. and, and it might be that some of the stats were true, but they got taken mm -hmm. out of context. Maybe 
we see a place where there's a black ghetto where there is more crime because they grew up in shit environments that are the results of slavery that never actually got properly addressed. So because of, again, understanding the problem in too narrow a way, we're like, oh, there, you can start to see where white supremacy makes sense. And the same way you can see where Zionism for mm. the Jews or where Jihadism for the Islamic starts to make sense or where then the, mm. the counter movement in terms of, you know, Black Panther or whatever else. And, but then you see that the fact that they make sense locally doesn't mean that they're viable. Like they can't find solutions because all they can do is do warfare solutions that will not win. They will self-terminate. And yet, if you look mm. throughout history, the answer was always doing exactly that thing and then trying to win the warfare thing. And so, again, if they study history, they're like, we're doing the only thing that anyone's ever done that makes sense. And this is why I say our process for solving problems is inadequate. We never had a process that said our answer is not going to be tribalism with an in-group against out-groups where we try and win through competitive force. That's the only thing that's ever happened. And yet, mm. at a level of power where our economic competition against each other in terms of who can extract resources from the environment fastest will actually make the planet not habitable, habitable for anyone. And where our warfare mm. technology can't be deployed in a way that wins without destroying the playing field for everyone. And where our narrative disinfo fighting each other is so much that it has destroyed the landscape of sense-making where no one really knows what the fuck is true about anything to be able to make good decisions. Mm -hmm. We actually can't keep doing any kind of in-group, out-group competition. So if I want to help heal the in-group, out-group competition, yeah. I have to understand what the world looks like through the lens of each in-group so mm -hmm. that I can see what maybe they could, what maybe could start to open the possibility set for them. What are their unmet mm -hmm. needs? That's the only strategy they have to meet where maybe if I came up with better strategies to meet those needs, new possibilities would open them. Okay, that, that's that's really cool. So, so you don't have to agree, you don't have to necessarily agree, just because you understand, let's say, an opposing view or an opposing culture, doesn't necessarily mean you have to agree with that perspective. Correct? I mean, it, you can have compassion, but it's not necessarily agreement. I want to actually remove the whole concept of agree or disagree at first. To yes. begin with, because agree or disagree is my perspective evaluating theirs. The first thing uh -huh. I want to do is actually take on theirs, which means I have to let go of mine, which is letting go of the part that would agree or disagree. I want mm. to experience it. So if mm. I'm really trying to imagine experiencing being a jihadist freedom fighter in Afghanistan, I'm not evaluating mm -hmm. whether or not I agree as Daniel, if I'm really experiencing the world through his eyes, he's never heard of Daniel. He doesn't, he, he, that's not even part of his universe, and he couldn't give any shits about it. But now when I imagine mm -hmm. in his environment, and I, and I don't just imagine it, I ask people, I go there, I seek to understand. But even if I just start to imagine, I say, okay, so I've got a situation where these are the countries that have the most natural resources in the world, and yet all the people are poor as fuck because the government's in corrupt relationships with the West, largely the U.S., sold all the resources. You have the most grotesque wealth inequality. Um, and the people have no very meaningful prospect of life. They drone bombs, drone strikes kill mm. mostly civilians. Like, I can start to get like, yeah, I'd be a fucking jihadist because I got nothing to live for. I have the thought that mm -hmm. dying maybe will secure a spot in heaven for my family members. And the 
Like what other possibilities do I have that make any sense? Now, if mm -hmm. I really take that on, it doesn't mean that I'm like going to go out and su support a growth of jihad. It means that I'm going to not yeah. villainize. That I'm going to say, fuck, we actually have to make a different set of paths forward viable for people there. Mm. And how do we even deal with the level of trauma of that, <laughs> you know, that we killed so many people who are mostly civilians who didn't do fucking anything wrong. Like now, if it was your kid that was blown apart by a drone strike in an apartment building while they slept, mm -hmm. what would you feel against whoever did mm -hmm. that? Like how the fuck do we heal that? But if I just say mm -hmm. terrorists, they're bad. That's, we need to yeah. bomb them more. Right. And so, so the first thing is I don't want to even have the part of my consciousness on that is agreeing or disagreeing. I want to have the part of my consciousness that is just seeking to experience. Well, their perspective has truth in it. It is not the truth. Right, more than right, nine right. Four. And so I'm not corroborating their strategy, but I am more qualified mm -hmm. to come up with a good strategy now that I know what would be needed to have something possibly work for them. Mm. What if, what if, now I think what you're saying is, is hitting me and I'm hoping those listening in, it's, it's digesting. Um, what, what if what might work for them or what they might think works for them mm, might be uh, uh, unreasonable or, or detrimental or like, what if that were the case? Well, this is where I say let's separate what is meaningful from the strategy to fulfill it. And oftentimes yes. people don't know how to do this themselves, right? So maybe what is meaningful to me, I think, is that our people have the holy land and that the other people are killed because that's what God wants, yeah. right? Yes. Okay, well, that's not, that's not going to fucking fly. Like, that is a mutually exclusive mm -hmm. strategy. And, ult mm -hmm. like, now here's a a hard topic, but it comes down to what, how do we relate to diversity? And the answer mm -hmm. is that like the more diverse an ecosystem is, the more resilient and thriving and healthy the ecosystem is. So long as all the things in the ecosystem co-evolve so that there is um, kind of reciprocal relationships between them. We know that if we introduce certain kinds of invasive species that were never part of that environment, that diversity can actually fuck the whole thing up and kill the ecosystem. Right. And mm. So we want as much diversity as we can have of perspective and skill and capacity and orientation that we can bring coherence to. We want as much diversity as we can actually bring coherence to. If we have diversity that we cannot bring coherence to, then it's just a basis for warfare. So any view that says our people are the only people or the chosen people or the right ones or the any view that fundamentally holds that it is mutually exclusive with other ones so it can't find coherence is a kind of diversity that is necessarily pathological. Now, that doesn't mean that there still isn't some truth in it, but the way that it's being held has to shift. Now, we know there are versions mm -hmm. of Christians and Muslims and Jews that hold shit that way, and we also know there are ones that don't hold shit that way at all. So we know that there even if someone's holding it that way, there's an adjacent worldview that holds a lot of what they hold sacred and doesn't hold the fucked up part, right? Yeah, yeah. And so if the, if the group holds that what is meaningful to us is that our people are the only people, that's not going to fly. But what, what they really, what's actually meaningful, like you'll notice how many people 
who have a decent level of life security and a decent level of economic abundance and decent access to education and decent political and religious freedoms become suicide bombers. Not that fucking many. Mm. Mm. Because you got better options. And so let's say that we have a situation where we've got two fundamentalist groups warring with each other that are both certain that winning is the only way. Well, mm-hmm. let's say that we didn't try to convince them of anything. We just made a new area where there was kind of a new ground up society, a civilization, where if people from either of those sides wanted to come join, but they wanted to agree to the constitution of this place. So they didn't just do the immigrate, but stay in their culture and, and you know, create yes. ghettos. But they, hey, we're, we actually like what this other thing represents and we want to come join it. So we're going to go through the training and education and integration program. Then there's a welcome. But the quality of life is so much higher where it's not about um, killing and dying for the cause and, you know, being in shit environments. Mm. There's actually the possibility of meaningful intimacy and learning and creativity and connection. A lot of people, and especially a lot of young people, will start to bail and say, you know, I, I actually have a better option now. And mm. the story that was offered to me isn't the only story anymore. And there is a version where the things that were actually sacred to me can be offered a better way without some of the other things. And then, you know, of course, you, you start to get uh, an attrition and an exodus from the worst structures. Mm. So the answer is not that you are able to meet everything someone thinks that they need. But yeah. can we meet the things that people actually need in a way where when that option is presented, some of the people start shifting and it starts to change the possibility mm. space and then the conditioning space for everyone. This is obviously not an instant solution. The same is true, mm. like, if we relate it to what might be more connected to a lot of people who are listening, if I'm just in a little micro-warfare with a family member, right, where – yes we have the difference of views and I'm pretty sure that I'm both (laughs) right and righteous and they're both wrong and being an ass about it. Um, And we both think that there's obviously not that much movement that can occur, right? Mm -hmm. My ability to empathize with their perspective, like to really feel what they're feeling, see the world through their eyes, doesn't mean that I'm corroborating it's a hundred percent true. It means that I can actually, maybe there is some distortion. Maybe they thought I said something I didn't. Maybe they are hearing through a lens of some trauma I didn't have. But I can get that with that being the case, fuck it. I can totally see why they'd be angry or sad or whatever it is. And once I have heard that, there's more openness in them generally to also hear something that I've got to share where we can both come to perspectives that are different than what either of us held previously. So, but I want to offer the empathy before I offer the uh, the evaluation on what parts of the story weren't true. But offering the empathy mm-hmm. doesn't mean I'm corroborating all of the story. Mm-hmm. Got it. Yeah, some some things to digest there, Daniel. Some really uh, some powerful things to digest that I think can really uh, create a shift. Um, folks, I hope you're digesting this conversation. Um, I'm loving this conversation with uh, with Daniel Schmachtenberger here. We're diving deep. 
You know, uh, just for sake of time, uh, a couple more questions. I mean, I feel like we could wrap for <laughs> at least a good couple of days here, uh, teasing out different things. Uh, you mentioned technology and the advancing technology uh, and, and the consequences of decisions based on technology uh, in our day and age today could be catastrophic. So I'm curious, um, as you look at the world, uh, yes, problems for sure. We're facing problems, challenges, but I'm curious what excites you. What, what uh, as a humanity, like, What's exciting to you? What 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 uh, what do you see as as the possibility, the potential, as we as we're going through this challenging time? Uh, what's most exciting? Mm-hmm. Well, there are things that excite me and concern me at the same time, and then there's other things mm-hmm. that are. Um, more just exciting. I'll make the distinction. Yeah. Most of the evolutions in technology excite me and concern me. Mm. So if I look at the development of artificial intelligence, are there things that it could do that would be really life-enhancing and awesome? Absolutely. We could, of course, use it to help advance medicine by being able to process protein-folding stuff or being able to process huge amounts of information, factoring bioinformatics, or could we use it for really terrible purposes? Militarized, Mm -hmm. weaponized AI, et cetera, of course. Could we use it for purposes that we think are good and are actually accidentally causing problems for the same reason that all of our other technology always has? Pretty much certainly. So the question is, it's just a lot more power. Now, do I think that humans are good stewards of power? Not so much yet. Mm And do I want them, do I want humans that are anything like the humans that we have always been, that have extincted species and solved their problems through war and done in-group, out-group competition and like that, do I want those beings to have exponentially more power? Nope. Mm. Uh, And so when I look at CRISPR and the ability to change the source code of life by editing the genome directly, do I think they're wise enough to know how to use that? Nope, not even close. Now, is it exciting mm. what the possibilities could be in terms of deeper insights into cancer and things? Of course it's exciting. But the level of knowledge that allows us to start messing with something is orders of magnitude less than is necessary to ensure no externalities in the future. And yet the market mm-hmm. forces of first to market have us use it when we know enough to do something, but not enough to ensure long-term rightness of strategy. So when I look at mostly everything happening in, in technology and exponential technologies, there are exciting possibilities and applications, but I'm more concerned than excited because there's plenty of financial mm-hmm. motive to use the thing in, in destructive ways. Something that's built for good purposes can be weaponized, and there's a lot of actual incentive and basis to weaponize it. And just even through mistakes, we mostly don't... Uh, we don't take considerate enough approaches. And so, again, like if I think about, okay, look at the Roman Empire, look at the Aztec Empire, look at just humans throughout the whole course of human history, do I, are those beings, the way they behave, safe vessels for exponential power? Mm. Not yet. 
And so mm-hmm. one way of framing up what I think about a lot <clears throat> is that what what exponential technology is giving us is exponential power. And in a mythopoetic mm-hmm. way, we can say like the power of gods. When you hear descriptions of Zeus's lightning bolt or, you know, what any of the power of kind of ancient god descriptions is like, and then you look at the power of the nuclear bomb, or you look at the fact that we can actually make new life forms with genetic engineering or destroy whole ecosystems, it's the power of gods. But without the love and the wisdom of gods to properly guide it, that's a bad equation. So then I say, well, what are what excites me the most is not things that are giving us more power, but things that are increasing the love and wisdom so we can hold the already tremendous power we have better. Yes. And so the things that excite me the most is the increased awareness in lots of people and in increasingly more into various aspects of popular culture about trauma healing and healing and, and development and uh, spirituality in general, where people could be less reactive and more aware. There's, of course, plenty of healing work that is gibberish or narcissistic, but there's also good stuff in the space. Mm. And also the amount of attention, and this is less popular, it's more on the fringe, but the amount of attention that people are starting to give to the idea that we actually have to redesign civilization in a pretty deep way. It's not just that we need to pick a new candidate in a uh, two-party system or whatever. It's, hey, even if we had three parties, even if we had five parties, even if we had a different kind of liquid voting structure, just the process of making propositions in a shitty way Mm. will inherently polarize the population. We actually need something better than that. What is post-democracy? Capitalism Mm. seems to have developed a lot of technologies that we like. It's true. It's also caused all the catastrophic problems in the world and now is is the cause of the perverse incentive and market forces that are driving us towards larger catastrophes. How do we have systems of allocating resources and um, motivating people and making choices that are better than capitalism? And we know that it's not a regress to any of the other economic systems that have already failed. It's not communism, socialism, but it's can we actually think up some better stuff? And we can because, you know, communism and capitalism and socialism all had to contend with certain things like how do we have a labor force? How do we incent a labor force which is going to be mm. most people to do shitty stuff that nobody wants to do? Running the plow all the time or then, you know, building the roads or whatever. And as we're moving into a phase of technological automation where the things that people Mm. don't like to do mostly are because they're very rote and they don't involve creativity. And the more rote a thing is, the easier it is to automate. And then Mm. that technological automation either removes people's jobs and now the people are homeless or they're terrified so they don't want the automation, or it makes possible totally new economic thinking because it removes one of the axioms that we have to make it to where the people need the jobs economically because the jobs need the people for society to get done. So it's like, oh, there's actually one of the underlying axioms changed. There's new possibilities opening. There's a lot of places where the axiom sets are changing. And so there are more people mm. starting to say, can we do deeper reimagining and redesign of the most foundational parts of civilization? Because maybe within capitalism and maybe within governments like democracies, 
we don't have adequate answers, but we don't have to be stuck with those axiom sets and retrofitting them. And that doesn't mean we go regressive to a previous worst thing, but maybe there, maybe innovation in the social technology space is actually possible. And so the people that are focused in that, I would say one of the things that is most exciting to me. Nice. Nice. Powerful stuff. And I have a, I have a, I have a final, uh, a final main question for you. Um, based on everything, I mean, you shared a lot today. Uh, based on everything that you've, you've learned in your life, relationships, business, your own spiritual, you know, practice, uh, based on your experience, if there were three, let's say, obviously there's going to be more, but if there were, let's say, the three most important life lessons that you, if you could only pass these uh, three keys, life lessons to the next generation, you could hand the next generation you know, these keys, wisdoms uh, to your children, their grandchildren, they'll be passed down. Uh, what, what would the three key life lessons that you would like to pass on to the next generation that you feel would evolve the next generation the most? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Small question. Yeah. Humanity is at stake, Daniel. It's at stake right now. These three keys. We want the three keys. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, I'll tell you the first thought that comes up is yeah. that we're used to having whatever wisdom people figured out in the past that we've accepted from science or spirituality or culture or whatever. And or that we figure out and wanting to pass the things that we figured out onto new people without paying as much mm. attention to why did some people figure out those things more than others? And how do we pass on the process of people figuring stuff out for themselves? Mm. And so like I could, I, I can ask, how do I get more people to believe the shit that Buddha figured out or that Einstein did or that Newton did? But I'm more interested in why did Buddha and Einstein and Newton figure out the shit that they did that other people weren't? What was different about the process of inquiry that they had mm. that had them have such a deep curiosity, such a deep epistemic drive, and <clears throat> a willingness to stay in the inquiry long enough that they didn't need to defect into somebody else's previous answer? And mm. to like have enough self-trust to really be in the experimentation process to figure new stuff out. What I, what I'm really interested in, in education more than passing on previous wisdoms is the process yep. by which people discover wisdom on their own mm -hmm. and how, and so like if I'm getting to talk to a kid, the fact that they're asking me questions is more interesting to me than any answer I can give them. Nice. And so I might have some answers for them, but mostly I actually want to keep fostering their yeah. curiosity itself. And so they ask me the question, mm. you know, why do the tree roots do this? And my first answer isn't to answer it. I'm like, well, why do you think it might be? And let's look around. What are mm. some different ideas? Why are you interested in that? And like, I want to help them learn how to think and explore on their own more and keep deepening their connection to their own interest. So I would say that that's a meta answer to yeah. anything else I would say 
about specific insights I'd pass on. We can still do specific insights if you want, or we can stick with that one. Yeah, no, I mean, I, 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 I'm feeling your answer. If there are specific insights that you would like to pass on, knowing that, you know, you've set the context, uh, mm-hmm. the process is more important. If there were any just learnings from your life, knowing that, hey, each person still has to find their own, tap into their own wisdom, but, you know, maybe there's something that you've learned that would would be supportive in some way. I'm curious. I'm curious what, what you know, a couple of things may be. So I'll share the things that come to mind first and come to feeling first without mm-hmm. having um, pre-identified that these would be my top three. Yes. Uh, I would want to share with people something that kind of is intuitively known to kids but help deepen it, which it, Mm-hmm. is that life is beautiful and sacred, period, all of it. And mm-hmm. to uh, that experiencing the beauty of life is actually meaningful, independent of doing anything, taking in the, the beauty of it, being awed, being moved by it, and then the, the doing that is meaningful is the doing that arises from that, that from really seeing reality and the, and the meaningfulness of it, the beauty of it, the sacredness of it, how I then seek to serve it, to protect it, to add to that beauty, arising from there is the right way mm-hmm. to find dharma and purpose and path and right action. Mm-hmm. Nice. That's one thing I would share. And another thing I would share is that we get conditioned to think that we need something from the world in order to be happy. We need uh, approval of other people. We need status. We need attention. We need money. We need credit. And so we go about seeking how do we get those things from the world. And what we're affirming is our own emptiness. That I am fundamentally lacking, empty, needing something from the world. And what we end up experiencing, even if we attain some of those things, is more of our own self-affirmation of emptiness. So that process goes forever. Yep. And yes. it's just connected us from both the fullness of ourself that's always accessible and the, and the fullness of life. And when I die, which is really soon, all the things that I mm. got are done. And yet, whatever ways that I touch the world continue to ripple on after I'm gone. So there is more expansiveness. There is more permanence in the arrow of how I am touching the world and what I'm trying to get from it. And if I'm focused on what can I actually offer to the world, I'm affirming having something to offer. As opposed to when I'm focused on getting something, I'm affirming being empty and needy. And as I am affirming that I have something to offer, I'm actually feeling my own fullness. This is that, like, the book of Luke, to those who have, more shall be given. To those who don't have, the little they have will be taken away. But having is this state of awareness. And so if someone can move from thinking that they are a little needy thing that needs something from the world and other people and projecting the love they didn't get from their parents on everyone else and trying to get the approval and avoid the judgment of everyone else, 
which will just lead to a miserable life. And instead, like, think about, okay, let's imagine that I died. And the spiritual idea of becoming a guardian angel is a real thing. And I became a guardian angel, and I could see people, but they couldn't see me. And I had the ability to help them, but they would never know would I do it. And most people, as they sit in that, where they realize that they wouldn't be getting anything out of it, <laughs> they're like, yes, I would still do it. And there's this kind of beauty in being able to see the experience of others and the happiness of others actually flourish. And, and so to say, okay, how can I come from that place more? Mm. Nah, beautiful. And maybe the third last thing I would say is that the idea of me as a separate self, like as, a, as an individual, as a being, is just a both spiritually and scientifically bad idea. It's ontologically wrong because <laughs> if I think about me as a separate being, I have to, what I'm saying is that I can think about me without thinking about all the plants. And yet without all the plants making an atmosphere of oxygen, I don't exist. So how separate am I from that which I inextricably depend upon? But if I can think about me without thinking about the plants, then I can actually harm the plants to my advantage, but I'm, I'm in the slow suiciding process by doing so. Mm. And I say, who am I without thinking in words that other people invented and taking for granted concepts that other people came up with and being able to interact with a world that has all the stuff that other people produced and the soil microbes and the gravitational field and electromagnetism, who would I be without the sun or the galactic center? And I realized, fuck, I actually depend on the entire universe existing for me to exist. Yes. And to yes. see if I'm a separate self is actually just gibberish. But if I mm. believe the gibberish, not only will I feel separate, but I will be able to think that it's reasonable to advantage myself at the expense of those other things that, that I think I'm not actually the result of. And so if I get, no, there is, you can't separate me from universe, take me out of universe and I don't exist, then advantage myself isn't the idea. It's how do I seek to grow all that I'm connected with, which is me and all of life and the relationship between those. And then I see myself as an emergent property of the whole that has uniqueness, but is inextricably interconnected. And how do I how do I make choices from that place? So those are maybe three specific, really beautiful, things beautiful, be worth completing. We are we are soul talking right now, Daniel. Beautiful. I, I, I really uh, feeling you, folks. Daniel just shared three of his wisdoms from life learning. Obviously, you know the encouragement. Find your own truth, but uh, really, really insightful, beautiful wisdoms there. Touching, touching indeed. You know, Daniel, as we as we wrap up, I would love, you know, you talked about wanting to to, to foster the curiosity. Is there a is there a simple uh, question that you could leave those listening today uh, as a homework assignment that you you feel would be a a question that they can reflect on to deepen their own uh, exploration and curiosity in their own evolutionary process? What what's what's let's say one question that you could leave the listeners with us. Yeah, I actually love that you asked the question that way because it, it assumes that the right homework assignment would be a question, which I, I think uh, is right. And if people were to journal on it and reflect on it, I, I think that this is quite useful. So 
I can ask the same question in a few different ways. Mm. I would ask, um, maybe the simplest way is I can say, what do I love? Mm. And just to give more insight into that question, I can ask, what do I care about? What is meaningful to me? What do I hold to be sacred? What is beautiful? And what do I want my life to be in service to, in devotion to? Mm. And if someone holds those questions and reflects on them, um, I I tend to find that uh, that clarity makes what am I here to do much clearer. Love it. I love the question. Folks, you heard the uh, the homework assignment. The question, what do I love? What's meaningful to me? What's beautiful? What do I want my life to be uh, in service to? Uh, the, the invitation to reflect on the question, meditate, journal, explore. I uh, hope you've uh, enjoyed this episode of Soul Talk with uh, the amazing Daniel Schmuckenberger. Daniel, what's the best way, uh, if people want to find out more about your work, what's, what's the, is there a website, what's the best way people can find out about uh, your work? Sure. I have a blog called civilizationemerging.com, and it's, there's not that much on there. It's a bit out of date, but there's some articles and in the media section, there's some podcasts, and that's a good place to start. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you for just you know, being so generous and sharing and just sharing your, your soul and your wisdom with, with everyone listening in today. Sending you much love and blessings, folks. We'll post uh, Daniel's uh, link on the show notes, civilizationemerging.com. Definitely check it, check it out. Explore his work. Lots of insights, lots of wisdom. Thank you for being on Soul Talk, Daniel. Everyone, send me an email, Coop Blackson at coopblackson.com. I would love to hear your insights from this conversation. Uh, just uh, share with me how the uh, exploration of... Uh, Daniel's questions that he assigned for homework has been going. Looking forward to uh, connecting with you in the next episode of Soul Talk. Until then, love now. If you've enjoyed this episode of Soul Talk, please do share the podcast with all of your friends. Let everyone know and make sure you download Soul Talk today. I'm looking forward to next week where I'll get to share more inspiration with you. Meanwhile, follow me on Facebook, Instagram, or social media. You can find out more about my work at www.coopblackson.com. If you feel ready to take your life to the next level, join me at my exclusive event in Bali, www.boundlessblissbali.com, you can find out more and apply also make sure to remember to download my free two-part video training series and learn the ultimate secrets to happiness and fulfillment at coopblackson.com sending you all big hugs and love now